Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Wilkie Collins' mystery, The Moonstone. Third narrative, chapters 3 and 4 today. As you might remember, Better Edge and Franklin Blake are on their way to Cobb's Hole to retrieve a very important letter that hopefully will give us a clue to the mystery of what happened to the Moonstone. And now, chapter 3. I have only the most indistinct recollection of what happened at Hotherstone's farm. I remember a hearty welcome, a prodigious supper, which would have fed a whole village in the East, a delightfully clean bedroom, with nothing in it to regret but that detestable product of the folly of our forefathers, a feather bed, a restless night, with much kindling of matches, and many lightings of one little candle, and an immense sensation of relief when the sun rose, and there was a prospect of getting up. It had been arranged overnight with Better Edge that I was to call for him on our way to Cobb's Hole as early as I liked, which, interpreted by my impatience to get possession of the letter, meant as early as I could. Without waiting for breakfast at the farm, I took a crust of bread in my hand and set forth, in some doubt whether I should not surprise the excellent Better Edge in his bed. To my great relief, he proved to be quite as excited about the coming event as I was. I found him ready and waiting for me with his stick in his hand. "'How are you this morning, Better Edge?' "'Very poorly, sir. "'I'm sorry to hear it. "'What do you complain of?' "'I complain of a new disease, Mr. Franklin, "'of my own inventing. "'I don't want to alarm you, "'but you're certain to catch it "'before the morning is out. "'The devil I am. "'Do you feel an uncomfortable heat "'at the pit of your stomach, sir, "'and a nasty thumping at the top of your head? "'Ah, not yet. "'It will lay hold of you at Cobb's Hole, Mr. Franklin.' I call it the detective fever, and I first caught it in the company of Sergeant Cuff. Aye, aye, and the cure in this instance is to open Rosanna Spearman's letter, I suppose. But come along, and let's get it. Early as it was, we found the fisherman's wife astir in her kitchen. On my presentation by Better Edge, good Mrs. Yolan performed a social ceremony, strictly reserved, as I afterwards learnt, for strangers of distinction. "'She put a bottle of Dutch gin and a couple of clean pipes on the table "'and opened the conversation by saying, "'What news from London, sir?' "'Before I could find an answer to this immensely comprehensive question, "'an apparition advanced towards me out of a dark corner of the kitchen. "'A wan, wild, haggard girl with remarkably beautiful hair "'and with a fierce keenness in her eyes "'came limping up on a crutch to the table at which I was sitting.' "'and looked at me as if I was an object of mingled interest and horror, "'which it quite fascinated her to see. "'Mr. Betteredge,' she said, without taking her eyes off me, "'mention his name again, if you please.' "'This gentleman's name,' answered Betteredge, "'with a strong emphasis on gentleman, "'is Mr. Franklin Blake.' "'The girl turned her back on me and suddenly left the room.' Good Mrs. Yoland, as I believe, made some apologies for her daughter's odd behavior, and Betteredge, probably, translated them into polite English. I speak of this in complete uncertainty. My attention was absorbed in following the sound of the girl's crutch. Thump, thump, up the wooden stairs. Thump, thump, across the room above our heads. Thump, thump, down the stairs again. And there stood the apparition at the open door, with a letter in its hand, beckoning me out. I left more apologies in course of delivery behind me, and followed this strange creature 
limping on before me, faster and faster, down the slope of the beach. She led me behind some boats, out of sight and hearing of the few people in the fishing village, and then stopped and faced me for the first time. "'Stand there,' she said. "'I want to look at you.' There was no mistaking the expression on her face. I inspired her with the strongest emotions of abhorrence and disgust. Let me not be vain enough to say that no woman had ever looked at me in this manner before. I will only venture on the more modest assertion that no woman had ever let me perceive it yet. There is a limit to the length of inspection which a man can endure, under certain circumstances. I attempted to direct limping Lucy's attention to some less revolting object than my face. "'I think you have got a letter to give me,' I began. "'Is the letter there, in your hand?' "'Say that again,' was the only answer I received. I repeated the words, like a good child learning its lesson. "'No,' said the girl, speaking to herself, but keeping her eyes still mercilessly fixed on me. "'I can't find out what she saw in his face. I can't guess what she heard in his voice.' She suddenly looked away from me, and rested her head wearily on the top of her crutch. "'Oh, my poor dear,' she said, in her first soft tones which had fallen from her in my hearing. "'Oh, my lost darling, what could you see in this man?' She lifted her head again fiercely, and looked at me once more. "'Can you eat and drink?' she asked. I did my best to preserve my gravity, and answered, "'Yes.' "'Can you sleep?' "'Yes.' "'Yes. "'When you see a poor girl in service, "'do you feel no remorse?' "'Certainly not. "'Why should I?' "'She abruptly thrust the letter, "'as the phrase is, into my face. "'Take it!' "'She exclaimed furiously. "'I never set eyes on you before. "'God Almighty forbid "'I should ever set eyes on you again.' "'With those parting words, "'she limped away from me "'at the top of her speed.' The one interpretation that I could put on her conduct has, no doubt, been anticipated by everybody. I could only suppose that she was mad. Having reached that inevitable conclusion, I turned to the more interesting object of investigation which was presented to me by Rosanna Spearman's letter. The address was written as follows, for Franklin Blake, Esquire, to be given into his own hands, and not to be trusted to anyone else, by Lucy Yolan. I broke the seal. The envelope contained a letter, and this in its turn contained a slip of paper. I read the letter first. Sir, if you are curious to know the meaning of my behavior to you, whilst you are staying in the house of my mistress, Lady Verinder, do what you are told to do in the memorandum enclosed with this, and do it without any person being present to overlook you. Your humble servant, Rosanna Spearman. I turned to the slip of paper next. Here is the literal copy of it, word for word. Memorandum. To go to the shivering sand at the turn of the tide. To walk out on the south spit until I get the south spit beacon and the flagstaff at the Coast Guard station above Cobb's Hole in a line together. To lay down on the rocks a stick or any straight thing to guide my hand exactly in the line of the beacon and the flagstaff. "'to take care in doing this "'that one end of the stick "'shall be at the edge of the rocks, "'on the side of them "'which overlooks the quicksand, "'to feel along the stick, "'among the seaweed, 
beginning from the end of the stick which points towards the beacon, for the chain. To run my hand along the chain, when found, until I come to the part of it which stretches over the edge of the rocks, down into the quicksand, and then to pull the chain. Just as I had read the last words, underlined in the original, I heard the voice of Betteredge behind me. The inventor of the detective fever had completely succumbed to that irresistible malady. "'I can't stand it any longer, Mr. Franklin. What does her letter say? For mercy's sake, sir, tell us. What does her letter say?' I handed him the letter and the memorandum. He read the first without appearing to be much interested in it, but the second, the memorandum, produced a strong impression on him. "'The sergeant said it!' cried Betteredge. "'From first to last, sir, the sergeant said she had got a memorandum of the hiding-place. "'And here it is. Lord save us, Mr. Franklin. "'Here is the secret that puzzled everybody, from the great cup downwards, "'ready and waiting, as one may say, to show itself to you. "'It's the ebb now, sir, as anybody may see for themselves. "'How long will it be till the turn of the tide?' "'He looked up and observed a lad at work, "'at some little distance from us, mending a net. "'Tammy Bright!' he shouted at the top of his voice. "'I hear you!' Tammy shouted back. "'When's the turn of the tide?' "'In an hour's time!' "'We both looked at our watches. "'We can go round by the coast, Mr. Franklin,' said Betteredge, "'and get to the quicksand in that way with plenty of time to spare. "'What do you say, sir?' "'Come along.' "'On our way to the shivering sand, "'I applied to Betteredge to revive my memory of events, "'as affecting Rosanna Spearman, "'at the period of Sergeant Cuff's inquiry. "'With my old friend's help, "'I soon had the succession of circumstances "'clearly registered in my mind. "'Rosanna's journey to prison hall, "'when the whole household believed her to be ill in her own room. "'Rosanna's mysterious employment of the night-time "'with her door locked.' "'and her candle burning till the morning. "'Rosanna's suspicious purchase of the J-Pan tin case "'and the two dogs' chains from Mrs. Yoland. "'The sergeant's positive conviction "'that Rosanna had hidden something at the shivering sand, "'and the sergeant's absolute ignorance "'as to what that something might be. "'All these strange results of the abortive inquiry "'into the loss of the moonstone "'were clearly present to me again. "'When we reached the quicksand,' and walked out together on the low ledge of rocks called the South Spit. With Betteredge's help, I soon stood in the right position to see the beacon and the Coast Guard flagstaff in a line together. Following the memorandum as our guide, we next laid my stick in the necessary direction, as neatly as we could, on the uneven surface of the rocks, and then we looked at our watches once more. It wanted nearly twenty minutes yet of the turn of the tide. I suggested waiting through this interval on the beach, "'instead of on the wet and slippery surface of the rocks. "'Having reached the dry sand, I prepared to sit down, "'and greatly to my surprise, Betteredge prepared to leave me. "'What are you going away for?' I asked. "'Look at the letter again, sir, and you will see.' "'A glance at the letter reminded me that I was charged, "'when I made my discovery, to make it alone. "'It is hard enough for me to leave you, "'at such a time as this,' said Betteredge. "'But she died a dreadful death, poor soul, "'and I feel a kind of call on me, Mr. Franklin, "'to humor that fancy of hers. "'Besides,' he added, confidentially, 
"'There's nothing in the letter against your letting out the secret afterwards. "'I'll hang about in the fir plantation and wait till you pick me up. "'Don't be longer than you can help, sir. "'The detective fever isn't an easy disease to deal with under these circumstances.' "'With that parting caution he left me. "'The interval of expectation, short as it was when reckoned by the measure of time, "'assumed formidable proportions when reckoned by the measure of suspense.' This was one of the occasions on which the invaluable habit of smoking becomes especially precious and consolatory. I lit a cigar and sat down on the slope of the beach. The sunlight poured its unclouded beauty on every object that I could see. The exquisite freshness of the air made the mere act of living and breathing a luxury. Even the lonely little bay welcomed the morning with a show of cheerfulness, and the bared wet surface of the quicksand itself "'glittering with a golden brightness, "'hid the horror of its false brown face "'under a passing smile. "'It was the finest day I had seen "'since my return to England. "'The turn of the tide came "'before my cigar was finished. "'I saw the preliminary heaving of the sand "'and then the awful shiver "'that crept over its surface, "'as if some spirit of terror "'lived and moved and shuddered "'in the fathomless deeps beneath. "'I threw away my cigar "'and went back again to the rocks.' My directions in the memorandum instructed me to feel along the line traced by the stick, beginning with the end which was nearest to the beacon. I advanced in this manner, more than halfway along the stick, without encountering anything but the edges of the rocks. An inch or two further on, however, my patience was rewarded. In a narrow little fissure, just within reach of my forefinger, I felt the chain. Attempting, next, to follow it by touch, in the direction of the quicksand, I found my progress stopped by a thick growth of seaweed, which had fastened itself into the fissure, no doubt, in the time that had elapsed since Rosanna Spearman had chosen her hiding place. It was equally impossible to pull up the seaweed, or to force my hand through it. After marking the spot indicated by the end of the stick which was placed nearest to the quicksand, I determined to pursue the search for the chain on a plan of my own. My idea was to sound immediately under the rocks, on the chance of recovering the lost trace of the chain at the point at which it entered the sand. I took up the stick and knelt down on the brink of the south spit. In this position my face was within a few feet of the surface of the quicksand. The sight of it so near me, still disturbed at intervals by its hideous, shivering fit, shook my nerves for a moment. A horrible fancy that the dead woman might appear on the scene of her suicide to assist my search, an unutterable dread of seeing her rise to the heaving surface of the sand and point to the place, forced itself into my mind and turned me cold in the warm sunlight. I own I closed my eyes at the moment when the point of the stick first entered the quicksand. The instant afterwards, before the stick could have been submerged more than a few inches, I was free from the hold of my own superstitious terror, and was throbbing with excitement from head to foot, sounding blindfold at my first attempt. At that first attempt, I had sounded right. The stick struck the chain. Taking firm hold of the roots of the seaweed with my left hand, I laid myself down over the brink, and felt with my right hand under the overhanging edges of the rock. My right hand found the chain. I drew it up without the slightest difficulty. "'and there was the J-Pen tin case fastened to the end of it. "'The action of the water had so rusted the chain 
that it was impossible for me to unfasten it from the hasp which attached it to the case. Putting the case between my knees, and exerting my utmost strength, I contrived to draw off the cover. Some white substance filled the whole interior when I looked in. I put in my hand, and found it to be linen. In drawing out the linen, I also drew out a letter crumpled up with it. After looking at the direction, and discovering that it bore my name, I put the letter in my pocket, and completely removed the linen. It came out in a thick roll, molded, of course, to the shape of the case in which it had been so long confined, and perfectly preserved from any injury by the sea. I carried the linen to the dry sand of the beach, and there unrolled and smoothed it out. There was no mistaking it as an article of dress. It was a nightgown. The uppermost side, when I spread it out, presented to view innumerable folds and creases, and nothing more. I tried the undermost side next, and instantly discovered the smear of the paint from the door of Rachel's boudoir. My eyes remained riveted on the stain, and my mind took me back at a leap from present to past. The very words of Sergeant Cuff recurred to me, as if the man himself was at my side again, pointing to the unanswerable inference which he drew from the smear on the door. "'Find out whether there's any article of dress in this house with the stain of paint on it. Find out who that dress belongs to. Find out how the person can account for having been in the room and smeared the paint between midnight and three in the morning. If the person can't satisfy you, you haven't far to look for the hand that took the diamond.' One after another those words traveled over my memory, repeating themselves again and again with a wearisome, mechanical reiteration. I was roused from what felt like a trance of many hours, from what was really, no doubt, the pause of a few moments only, by a voice calling to me. I looked up, and saw that Betteredge's patience had failed him at last. He was just visible between the sand hills, returning to the beach. The old man's appearance recalled me, the moment I perceived it, to my sense of present things, and reminded me that the inquiry which I had pursued thus far still remained incomplete. I had discovered the smear on the nightgown. To whom did the nightgown belong? My first impulse was to consult the letter in my pocket, the letter which I had found in the case. As I raised my hand to take it out, I remembered that there was a shorter way to discovery than this. The nightgown itself would reveal the truth, for, in all probability, the nightgown was marked with its owner's name. I took it up from the sand and looked for the mark. I found the mark and read, My own name. There were familiar letters which told me that the nightgown was mine. I looked up from them. There was the sun. There were the glittering waters of the bay. There was old Betteredge advancing nearer and nearer to me. I looked back again at the letters. My own name, plainly confronting me. My own name. If time, pains, and money can do it, I will lay my hand on the thief who took the moonstone. I had left London with those words on my lips. I had penetrated the secret which the quicksand had kept from every other living creature, and on the unanswerable evidence of the paint stain, I had discovered myself as the thief. Before we take a sponsor break, it's important to let you know that the night clothes worn by men and women back in those days were called nightgowns. We'll return with Chapter 4 of the Third Narrative right after these sponsor messages. 
And now chapter 4. I have not a word to say about my own sensations. My impression is that the shock inflicted on me completely suspended my thinking and feeling power. I certainly could not have known what I was about when Betteridge joined me, for I have it on his authority that I laughed when he asked what was the matter, and putting the nightgown into his hands, told him to read the riddle for himself. Of what was said between us on the beach, I have not the faintest recollection. The first place in which I can now see myself again plainly is the plantation of firs. Betteredge and I are walking back together to the house, and Betteredge is telling me that I shall be able to face it, and he will be able to face it, when we have had a glass of grog. The scene shifts from the plantation to Betteredge's little sitting-room. My resolution not to enter Rachel's house is forgotten. I feel gratefully the coolness and shadiness and quiet of the room. I drink the grog, a perfectly new luxury to me at that time of day, which my good old friend mixes with icy cold water from the well. Under any other circumstances, the drink would simply stupefy me. As things are, it strings up my nerves. I begin to face it, as Betteredge has predicted, and Betteredge, on his side, begins to face it, too. The picture which I am now presenting of myself will, I suspect, be thought a very strange one, to say the least of it. Placed in a situation which may, I think, be described as entirely without parallel, what is the first proceeding to which I resort? Do I seclude myself from all human society? Do I set my mind to analyze the abominable impossibility which, nevertheless, confronts me as an undeniable fact? Do I hurry back to London by the first train to consult the highest authorities, and to set a searching inquiry on foot immediately? No. I accept the shelter of a house which I had resolved never to degrade myself by entering again, and I sit, tippling spirits and water in the company of an old servant, at ten o'clock in the morning. Is this the conduct that might have been expected from a man placed in my horrible position? I can only answer that the sight of old Betteredge's familiar face was an inexpressible comfort to me, and that the drinking of old Betteredge's grog helped me, as I believe nothing else would have helped me, in the state of complete bodily and mental prostration into which I had fallen. I can only offer this excuse for myself, and I can only admire that invariable preservation of dignity, and that strictly logical consistency of conduct which distinguish every man and woman who may read these lines, in every emergency of their lives, from the cradle to the grave. Now, Mr. Franklin, there's one thing certain, at any rate, said Betteredge, throwing the nightgown down on the table between us, and pointing to it as if it was a living creature that could hear him. He's a liar, to begin with. This comforting view of the matter was not the view that presented itself to my mind. I am as innocent of all knowledge of having taken the diamond as you are, I said. But there is the witness against me. The paint on the nightgown and the name on the nightgown are facts. Betteredge lifted my glass and put it persuasively into my hand. Facts? he repeated. Take a drop more grog, Mr. Franklin, and you'll get over the weakness of believing in facts. Foul play, sir, he continued, dropping his voice confidentially. That's how I read the riddle. Foul play somewhere, and you and I must find it out. Was there nothing else in the tin case when you put your hand into it?
The question instantly reminded me of the letter in my pocket. I took it out and opened it. It was a letter of many pages, closely written. I looked impatiently for the signature at the end. Rosanna Spearman. As I read the name, a sudden remembrance illuminated my mind, and a sudden suspicion rose out of the new light. Stop! I exclaimed. Rosanna Spearman came to my aunt out of a reformatory? Rosanna Spearman had once been a thief? There's no denying that, Mr. Franklin. What of it now, if you please? What of it now? How do we know she may not have stolen the diamond after all? How do we know she may not have smeared my nightgown purposely with the paint? Betteredge laid his hand on my arm and stopped me before I could say any more. "'You will be cleared of this, Mr. Franklin, beyond all doubt. "'But I hope you won't be cleared in that way. "'See what the letter says, sir, in justice to the girl's memory. "'See what it says.' "'I felt the earnestness with which he spoke, "'felt it as a friendly rebuke to me. "'You shall form your own judgment on her letter,' I said. "'I will read it out.' "'I began, and read these lines.' "'Sir, I have something to own to you, "'a confession which means much misery, "'and sometimes be made in very few words. "'This confession can be made in three words. "'I love you. "'I love you.' "'The letter dropped from my hand. "'I looked at Betteredge. "'In the name of heaven,' I said. "'What does it mean?' "'He seemed to shrink from answering the question.' "'You and Limping Lucy were alone together this morning, sir,' he said. "'Did she say nothing about Rosanna Spearman?' "'No, she never even mentioned Rosanna Spearman's name. "'Please go back to the letter, Mr. Franklin. "'I tell you plainly, I can't find it in my heart to distress you, "'after what you've had to bear already. "'Let her speak for herself, sir, and get on with your grog. "'For your own sake, get on with your grog.' "'I resumed the reading of the letter.' "'It would be very disgraceful to me to tell you this, "'if I was a living woman, when you read it. "'I shall be dead and gone, sir, when you find my letter. "'It is that which makes me bold. "'Not even my grave will be left to tell me "'I may own the truth, "'with the quicksand waiting to hide me when the words are written. "'Besides, you will find your nightgown in my hiding place, "'with the smear of paint on it, "'and you will want to know how it came to be hidden by me, "'and why I said nothing to you about it in my lifetime.' I have only one reason to give. I did these strange things because I loved you. I won't trouble you with much about myself or my life before you came to my lady's house. Lady Verinder took me out of a reformatory. I had gone to the reformatory from the prison. I was put in the prison because I was a thief. I was a thief because my mother went on the streets when I was quite a little girl. My mother went on the streets because the gentleman who was my father deserted her. There is no need to tell such a common story as this at any length. It is told quite often enough in the newspapers. Lady Verinder was very kind to me, and Mr. Betteredge was very kind to me. These two, and the matron at the reformatory, are the only good people I've ever met with in all my life. I might have got on in my place, not happily, but I might have got on, if you had not come visiting. I don't blame you, sir. It's my fault. "'All my fault. "'Do you remember when you came out on us from among the sandhills that morning, "'looking for Mr. Betteredge? 
"'You are like a prince in a fairy story. "'You are like a lover in a dream. "'You are the most adorable human creature I had ever seen. "'Something that felt like the happy life I had never led yet "'leapt up in me at the instant I set eyes on you. "'Don't laugh at this if you can help it. "'Oh, if I could only make you feel how serious it is to me!' I went back to the house and wrote your name and mine in my workbox and drew a true lover's knot under them. Then some devil, though I ought to say some good angel, whispered to me, Go and look in the glass. The glass told me, Never mind what. I was too foolish to take the warning. I went on getting fonder and fonder of you, just as if I was a lady in your own rank of life and the most beautiful creature your eyes ever rested on. I tried, oh dear, how I tried, to get you to look at me. If you had known how I used to cry at night with the misery and the mortification of your never taking any notice of me, you would have pitied me, perhaps, and have given me a look now and then to live on. It would have been no very kind look, perhaps, if you had known how I hated Miss Rachel. I believe I found out you were in love with her before you knew it yourself. She used to give you roses to wear in your buttonhole. "'Ah, Mr. Franklin, you wore my roses oftener than either you or she thought. "'The only comfort I had at that time was putting my rose secretly in your glass of water "'in place of hers, and then throwing her rose away. "'If she had been really as pretty as you thought her, I might have borne it better. "'No, I believe I should have been more spiteful against her still. "'Suppose you put Miss Rachel into a servant's dress,' "'and took her ornaments off. "'I don't know what is the use of my writing in this way. "'It can't be denied that she had a bad figure. "'She was too thin. "'But who can tell what the men like? "'And young ladies may behave in a manner "'which would cost a servant her place. "'It's no business of mine. "'I can't expect you to read my letter "'if I write it this way. "'But it does stir one up to hear Miss Rachel called pretty, "'when one knows all the time that it's her dress, does it? "'and her confidence in herself. "'Try not to lose patience with me, sir. "'I will get on as fast as I can "'to the time which is sure to interest you, "'the time when the diamond was lost. "'But there is one thing "'which I have got on my mind to tell you first. "'My life was not a very hard life to bear "'while I was a thief. "'It was only when they taught me at the reformatory "'to feel my own degradation "'and to try for better things "'that the days grew long and weary.' Thoughts of the future forced themselves on me now. I felt the dreadful reproach that honest people, even the kindest of honest people, were to me in themselves. A heartbreaking sensation of loneliness kept with me, go where I might, and do what I might, and see what persons I might. It was my duty, I know, to try and get on with my fellow servants in my new place. Somehow, I couldn't make friends with them. They looked, or I thought they looked, "'as if they suspected what I had been. "'I don't regret, far from it, "'having been roused to make the effort "'to be a reformed woman. "'But indeed, indeed, it was a weary life. "'You had come across it like a beam of sunshine at first, "'and then you too failed me. "'I was mad enough to love you, "'and I couldn't even attract your notice. "'There was great misery.' There really was great misery in that. Now I'm coming to what I wanted to tell you. 
"'In those days of bitterness, "'I went two or three times, "'when it was my turn to go out, "'to my favorite place, "'the beach above the shivering sand. "'And I said to myself, "'I think it will end here. "'When I can bear it no longer, "'I think it will end here. "'You will understand, sir, "'that the place had laid a kind of spell on me "'before you came. "'I had always had a notion "'that something would happen to me "'at the quicksand, "'but I had never looked at it "'with the thought of its being the means "'of my making away with myself "'till the time came of which I am now writing. "'Then I did think that here was a place "'which would end all my troubles for me "'in a moment or two, "'and hide me for ever afterwards. "'This is all I have to say about myself, "'reckoning from the morning when I first saw you "'to the morning when the alarm was raised "'in the house that the diamond was lost. "'I was so aggravated by the foolish talk "'among the women servants.' "'all wondering who was to be suspected first. "'And I was so angry with you, "'knowing no better at that time "'for the pains you took in hunting for the jewel "'and sending for the police, "'that I kept as much as possible away by myself "'until later in the day "'when the officer from prison hall came to the house. "'Mr. Seagrave began, as you may remember, "'by setting a guard in the women's bedrooms, "'and the women all followed him upstairs in a rage.' "'to know what he meant by the insult he put on them. "'I went with the rest, "'because if I'd done anything different from the rest, "'Mr. Seagrave was the sort of man "'who would have suspected me directly. "'We found him in Miss Rachel's room. "'He told us he wouldn't have a lot of women there, "'and he pointed to the smear on the painted door "'and said some of our petticoats had done the mischief "'and sent us all downstairs again. "'After leaving Miss Rachel's room,' I stopped a moment on one of the landings, by myself, to see if I'd got the paint stained by any chance on my gown. Penelope Betteredge, the only one of the women with whom I was on friendly terms, passed, and noticed what I was about. "'You needn't trouble yourself, Rosanna,' she said. "'The paint on Miss Rachel's door has been dry for hours. If Mr. Seagrave hadn't set a watch on our bedrooms, I might have told him as much. I don't know what you think.' "'I was never so insulted before in my life. "'Penelope was a hot-tempered girl. "'I quieted her and brought her back "'to what she had said about the paint on the door "'having been dry for hours. "'How do you know that?' I asked. "'I was with Miss Rachel and Mr. Franklin "'all yesterday morning,' Penelope said, "'mixing the colors while they finished the door. "'I heard Miss Rachel ask whether the door "'would be dry that evening "'in time for the birthday company to see it.' "'and Mr. Franklin shook his head "'and said it wouldn't be dry in less than twelve hours. "'It was long past luncheon time. "'It was three o'clock before they had done. "'What does your arithmetic say, Rosanna? "'Mine says the door was dry by three this morning. "'Did some of the ladies go upstairs yesterday evening to see it?' "'I asked. "'I thought I heard Miss Rachel warning them to keep clear of the door. "'None of the ladies made the smear.' "'Penelope answered. "'I left Miss Rachel in bed at twelve last night, "'and I noticed the door, "'and there was nothing wrong with it then. "'Oughtn't you to mention this to Mr. Seagrave, Penelope?' "'I wouldn't say a word to help Mr. Seagrave "'for anything else that could be offered to me.' "'She went to her work, and I went to mine. "'My work, sir, was to make your bed "'and to put your room tidy. "'It was the happiest hour I had in the whole day.' I used to kiss the pillow on which your head had rested all night. No matter who had done it since, 
"'you have never had your clothes folded as nicely "'as I folded them for you. "'Of all the little knick-knacks in your dressing-case, "'there wasn't one that had so much as a speck on it. "'You never noticed it, any more than you noticed me. "'I beg your pardon. "'I'm forgetting myself. "'I will make haste and go on again. "'Well, I went in that morning to do my work in your room. "'There was your nightgown tossed across the bed, "'just as you had thrown it off.' "'I took it up to fold it, "'and I saw the stain of the paint from Miss Rachel's door. "'I was so startled by the discovery "'that I ran out with the nightgown in my hand "'and made for the back stairs "'and locked myself into my own room "'to look at it in a place where nobody could intrude "'and interrupt me. "'As soon as I got my breath again, "'I called to mind my talk with Penelope, "'and I said to myself, "'Here's the proof that he was in Miss Rachel's sitting room "'between twelve last night and three this morning.' "'I shall not tell you in plain words "'what was the first suspicion that crossed my mind "'when I had made that discovery. "'You would only be angry, "'and, if you were angry, "'you might tear my letter up and read no more of it. "'Let it be enough, if you please, "'to say only this. "'After thinking it over to the best of my ability, "'I made it out that the thing wasn't likely, "'for a reason that I will tell you. "'If you had been in Miss Rachel's sitting-room "'at that time of night,' "'with Miss Rachel's knowledge, "'and if you had been foolish enough "'to forget to take care of the wet door, "'she would have reminded you. "'She would have never let you carry away "'such a witness against her "'as the witness I was looking at now. "'At the same time, "'I own I was not completely certain in my own mind "'that I had proved my own suspicion to be wrong. "'You will not have forgotten "'that I have owned to hating Miss Rachel. "'Try to think, if you can,' "'that there was a little of that hatred in all this. "'It ended in my determining to keep the nightgown "'and to wait and watch "'and see what use I might make of it. "'At that time, please to remember, "'not the ghost of an idea entered my head "'that you had stolen the diamond. "'There I broke off in the reading of the letter "'for the second time. "'I had read these portions of the miserable woman's confession "'which related to myself with unaffected surprise, "'and, I could honestly add, "'with sincere distress. "'I had regretted, truly regretted, "'the aspersion which I had thoughtlessly cast on her memory "'before I had seen a line of her letter. "'But when I advanced as far as the passage which is quoted above, "'I own I felt my mind growing bitterer and bitterer "'against Rosanna Spearman as I went on. "'Read the rest for yourself,' I said, "'handing the letter to Better Edge across the table. "'If there's anything in it that I must look at, "'you can tell me as you go on.' "'I understand you, Mr. Franklin,' he answered. "'It's natural, sir, in you. "'And God help us all,' he added, in a lower tone. "'It's no less natural in her.' "'I proceed to copy the continuation of the letter from the original, "'in my own possession. "'Having determined to keep the nightgown "'and to see what use my love, or my revenge, "'I hardly know which, could turn it to in the future, "'the next thing to discover was how to keep it "'without the risk of being found out.' There was only one way, to make another nightgown exactly like it, before Saturday came, and brought the laundry woman and her inventory to the house. I was afraid to put it off till next day, the Friday, being in doubt lest some accident might happen in the interval. I determined to make the new nightgown on that same day, the Thursday, while I could count, if I played my cards properly, on having my time to myself. The first thing to do, after locking up your nightgown in my drawer, 
was to go back to your bedroom. Not so much to put it to rights. Penelope would have done that for me, if I had asked her, as to find out whether you had smeared off any of the paint stain from your nightgown on the bed or any piece of furniture in the room. I examined everything narrowly, and at last I found a few streaks of the paint on the inside of your dressing gown, not the linen dressing gown you usually wore in that summer season, but a flannel dressing gown which you had with you also. I suppose you felt chilly after walking to and fro in nothing but your nightdress, and put on the warmest thing you could find. At any rate, there were the stains, just visible, on the inside of the dressing gown. I easily got rid of these by scraping away the stuff of the flannel. This done, the only proof left against you was the proof locked up in my drawer. I had just finished your room when I was sent for to be questioned by Mr. Seagrave, along with the rest of the servants. Next came the examination of all our boxes, and then followed the most extraordinary event of the day, to me, since I had found the paint on your nightgown. This event came out of the second questioning of Penelope Betteredge by Superintendent Seagrave. Penelope returned to us quite beside herself with rage at the manner in which Mr. Seagrave had treated her. He had hinted, beyond the possibility of mistaking him, that he suspected her of being the thief. We were all equally astonished at hearing this, and we still asked, Why? Because the diamond was in Miss Rachel's sitting room, Penelope answered, and because I was the last person in the sitting room at night. Almost before the words had left her lips, I remembered that another person had been in the sitting room later than Penelope. That person was yourself. My head whirled round, and my thoughts were in dreadful confusion. In the midst of it all, something in my mind whispered to me that the smear on your nightgown might have a meaning entirely different to the meaning which I had given to it up to that time. If the last person who was in the room is the person to be suspected, I thought to myself, the thief is not Penelope, but Mr. Franklin Blake. In the case of any other gentleman, I believe I should have been ashamed of suspecting him of theft, almost as soon as the suspicion had passed through my mind. But the bare thought that you had let yourself down to my level, and that I, in possessing myself of your nightgown, had also possessed myself of the means of shielding you from being discovered, and disgraced for life, I say, sir, the bare thought of this seemed to open such a chance before me of winning your good will that I passed blindfold, as one may say, from suspecting to believing. I made up my mind on the spot that you had shown yourself the busiest of anybody in fetching the police, as a blind to deceive us all, and that the hand which had taken Miss Rachel's jewel could by no possibility be any other hand than yours." The excitement of this new discovery of mine must, I think, have turned my head for a while. I felt such a devouring eagerness to see you, to try you with a word or two about the diamond, and to make you look at me and speak to me in that way, that I put my hair tidy and made myself as nice as I could and went to you boldly in the library where I knew you were writing. You had left one of your rings upstairs, which made as good an excuse for my intrusion as I could have desired. But, oh! Sir, if you have ever loved, you will understand how it was that all my courage cooled when I walked into the room and found myself in your presence. And then you looked up at me so coldly, and you thanked me for finding your ring in such an indifferent manner, that my knees trembled under me, and I felt as if I should drop on the floor at your feet. 
When you had thanked me, you looked back, if you remember, at your writing. I was so mortified at being treated in this way that I plucked up spirit enough to speak. I said, This is a strange thing about the diamond, sir. And you looked up again and said, Yes, it is. You spoke civilly. I can't deny that. But still you kept the distance, a cruel distance between us. Believing as I did that you had got the lost diamond hidden about you, while you were speaking, your coolness so provoked me that I got bold enough, in the heat of the moment, to give you a hint. I said, They will never find the diamond, sir, will they? No, nor the person who took it. I'll answer for that. I nodded and smiled at you so much as to say, I know. This time you looked up at me with something like interest in your eyes, and I felt that a few more words on your side and mine might bring out the truth. Just at that moment, Mr. Betteridge spoiled it all by coming to the door. I knew his footstep, and I also knew that it was against his rules for me to be in the library at that time of day, let alone being there along with you. I had only just time to get out of my own accord before he could come in and tell me to go. I was angry and disappointed, but I was not entirely without hope for all that. The ice, you see, was broken between us, and I thought I would take care on the next occasion that Mr. Betteridge was out of the way. When I got back to the servants' hall, the bell was going for our dinner. Afternoon already, and the materials for making the new nightgown were still to be got. There was but one chance of getting them. I shammed ill at dinner, and so secured the whole of the interval from then till tea-time to my own use. What I was about, while the household believed me to be lying down in my own room, and how I spent the night, after shamming ill again at tea-time, and having been sent up to bed, there's no need to tell you. Sergeant Cuff discovered that much, if he discovered nothing more. And I can guess how I was detected, although I kept my veil down, in the draper shop at prison hall. There was a glass in front of me at the counter where I was buying the long cloth, and, in that glass, I saw one of the shopmen point to my shoulder and whisper to another. At night again, when I was secretly at work, locked into my room, I heard the breathing of the women servants who suspected me outside my door. It didn't matter then. It doesn't matter now. On the Friday morning, hours before Sergeant Cup entered the house, there was the new nightgown to make up your number in place of the nightgown I had got. Made, wrung out, dried, ironed, marked, and folded, as the laundry woman folded all the others, safe in your drawer. There was no fear, if the linen in the house was examined, of the newness of the nightgown betraying me. All your underclothing had been renewed when you came to our house, I suppose on your return home from foreign parts. The next thing was the arrival of Sergeant Cuff, and the next great surprise was the announcement of what he thought about the smear on the door. I believed you to be guilty, as I have owned, more because I wanted you to be guilty than for any other reason. And now the sergeant had come around by a totally different way to the same conclusion, respecting the nightgown, as mine. And I had got the dress that was the only proof against you. And not a living creature knew it, yourself included. 
I am afraid to tell you how I felt when I called these things to mind. You would hate my memory forever afterwards. At that place, Betteredge looked up from the letter. Not a glimmer of light so far, Mr. Franklin, said the old man, taking off his heavy tortoiseshell spectacles and pushing Rosanna Spearman's confession a little away from him. Have you come to any conclusion, sir, in your own mind? Well, I've been reading. Finish the letter first, Betteredge. "'There may be something to enlighten us at the end of it. "'I shall have a word or two to say to you after that.' "'Very good, sir. "'I'll just rest my eyes, and then I'll go on again. "'In the meantime, Mr. Franklin, I don't want to hurry you, "'but would you mind telling me, in one word, "'whether you see your way out of this dreadful mess yet?' "'I see my way back to London,' I said, "'to consult Mr. Bruff. "'If he can't help me—' "'Yes, sir.' "'and if the sergeant won't leave his retirement at Dorking.' "'He won't, Mr. Franklin.' "'Then, Betteredge, as far as I can see now, "'I'm at the end of my resources. "'After Mr. Bruff and the sergeant, "'I don't know of a living creature "'who, who could be of the slightest use to me.' "'As the words passed my lips, "'some person outside knocked at the door of the room. "'Betteredge looked surprised as well as annoyed "'by the interruption. "'Come in,' "'he called out, irritably, "'whoever you are.' "'The door opened, "'and there entered to us, quietly, "'the most remarkable-looking man "'that I had ever seen. "'Judging him by his figure and his movements, "'he was still young. "'Judging him by his face "'and comparing him with Betteredge, "'he looked the elder of the two. "'His complexion was of a gypsy darkness. "'His fleshless cheeks had fallen into deep hollows, "'over which the bone projected like a penthouse.' His nose presented the fine shape and modeling so often found among the ancient people of the East, so seldom visible among the newer races of the West. His forehead rose high and straight from the brow. His marks and wrinkles were innumerable. From this strange face, eyes, stranger still, of the softest brown, eyes dreamy and mournful, and deeply sunk in their orbits, looked out at you, and, in my case at least, took your attention "'captive at their will. "'Add to this a quantity of thick, "'closely curling hair, "'which, by some freak of nature, "'had lost its color "'in the most startlingly partial "'and capricious manner. "'Over the top of his head "'it was still of the deep black "'which was its natural color. "'Round the sides of his head, "'without the slightest gradation of gray "'to break the force "'of the extraordinary contrast, "'it had turned completely white. "'The line between the two colors "'preserved no sort of regularity.' At one place, the white hair ran up into the black. At another, the black hair ran down into the white. I looked at the man with a curiosity which, I am ashamed to say, I found it quite impossible to control. His soft brown eyes looked back at me gently, and he met my involuntary rudeness in staring at him with an apology which I was conscious that I had not deserved. "'I beg your pardon,' he said. "'I had no idea that Mr. Betteredge was engaged.' "'He took a slip of paper from his pocket "'and handed it to Betteredge. "'The list for next week,' he said. "'His eyes just rested on me again, "'and he left the room as quietly as he had entered it. "'Who is that?' I asked. "'Mr. Candy's assistant,' said Betteredge. "'By the by, Mr. Franklin, "'you'll be sorry to hear that the little doctor "'has never recovered that illness he caught "'going home from the birthday dinner. "'He's pretty well in health.' "'but he's lost his memory in the fever, 
"'and he's never recovered more than a wreck of it since. "'The work all falls on his assistant. "'Not much of it now, except among the poor. "'They can't help themselves, you know. "'They must put up with the man with the piebald hair "'and the gypsy complexion, "'or they would get no doctor in at all. "'You don't seem to like him, Bitteredge. "'Nobody likes him, sir. "'Why is he so unpopular? "'Well, Mr. Franklin,' "'His appearance is against him, to begin with. "'And then there's a story that Mr. Candy took him with a very doubtful character. "'Nobody knows who he is, and he hasn't a friend in the place. "'How can you expect one to like him after that?' "'Quite impossible, of course. "'May I ask what he wanted with you, when he gave you that bit of paper?' "'Only to bring me the weekly list of the sick people about here, sir, "'who stand in need of a little wine.' My lady always had a regular distribution of good sound port and sherry among the infirm poor, and Miss Rachel, which is the custom to be kept up. Times have changed. Times have changed. I remember when Mr. Candy himself brought the list to my mistress. Now it's Mr. Candy's assistant who brings the list to me. I'll go on with the letter, if you will allow me, sir, said Betteredge, drawing Rosanna Spearman's confession back to him. It isn't lively reading, I grant you, but there, it keeps me from getting sour with thinking of the past. He put on his spectacles and wagged his head gloomily. There's a bottom of good sense, Mr. Franklin, in our conduct to our mothers when they first start us on the journey of life. We are all of us more or less unwilling to be brought into the world, and we are all of us right. Mr. Candy's assistant had produced too strong an impression on me to be immediately dismissed from my thoughts. I passed over the last unanswerable utterance of the better-edged philosophy, and returned to the subject of the man with the piebald hair. "'What is his name?' I asked. "'As ugly a name as need be,' Betteredge answered gruffly. "'Ezra Jennings.' Thanks for joining us for chapters three and four from the third narrative of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. We've had a couple of really nice reviews lately, and I wanted to share them with you, and hope that you take a moment, too, and send us a kind review if you're enjoying The Moonstone. The first one, five stars, my favorite podcast. I'm thoroughly enjoying this audio version of The Moonstone. Great story. Excellent narration. My only complaint is that I have to wait a week between episodes. That one from SNB Walter, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, My Nightly Routine. I love the stories, and the narration is clear and pleasant to listen to. I listen when I'm out running, and when I lay in bed at night trying to fall asleep. I'm a big fan. Down from SIG742, Apple Podcast Canada. And this one, five stars, The Moonstone. Very well read. Great idea to read classics aloud. My favorite podcast. Down from Tomster, Apple Podcast Switzerland. And this one, amazing, my ultimate relaxation. Five stars. I found 1001 Stories for the Road a year ago, and I love it. After long, stressful days, or pottering around doing the daily chores, your podcast is the ultimate chill-out. The selection of stories is fantastic. All quality literature. I'm loving the Moonstone. Thank you, John. Down from Collinsonator, Apple Podcast, Great Britain. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to sit down and write us these reviews. They are greatly appreciated. And I'm humbly grateful to you for doing so. Thank you. And thank you all for supporting our show. Thank you, Patreon supporters. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, those who send the reviews. Thank you, who share our show with others. You all are what keep me going here. You really are. 
Well, I can't wait for the next two chapters, but we're going to have to wait till next Sunday to get them. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. And we'll be back soon.